Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Our guest this week is Lane Kawaoke. Lane started out as a professional engineer with a master's degree in civil engineering. Today, he owns 12 single family houses. He controls two mobile home parks and over 1,600 units in the Midwest and through the Southeast US. Today, we're going to talk about some important details around passive investing, some of his experience in passive investing back when he was just a passive investor. And uh, Lane is the guy to talk to about this stuff because he's the host of the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast. Very excited to talk with him today. Lane, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Taylor. So I, as I was reading through your bio before the interview, I noticed some of your experience back when you were in the LP waters, now you're your general partner and you're syndicating deals, but back when you were a money partner in deals, there were a couple things noted as failed LP syndications, failed syndications, things like that. What happened there and what can we learn from that experience? Yeah, that was um, kind of when I was first getting started in the LP stuff. I mean, prior to that, I was, you know, I think at that point I had like five or six single family homes by myself, but I had some money in my self-directed Roth IRA and people who play around with that stuff, you know, you kind of realize how it's not that great, all that self-directed IRA and, and solo 401k stuff because you can't really leverage it. You can't get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans. So I was kind of looking for just something to do something with that money other than keep it in some kind of mutual fund uh, account. So what I did was I went into, um, you know, I asked the self-directed IRA custodian, which was kind of mistake number one. I mean, what the heck do these guys know? They're just custodians. They're not investors, right? And I said, oh, who who are you? Uh, who, who's, what are you people investing in this stuff, right? And they connected me with an operator who had this deal where you go on title to a property with them and they kind of manage it turnkey and they give you like a, 9% pref and like 50 50 at the back end. And I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. You know? wow. I mean, it, it was like, I think it was like 40, $45,000 for, for it. So, I mean, pretty substantial buy-in, but I didn't really, I didn't really know them. I didn't, I, I understood the whole buying single family home thing. And I bought on to that area, the local submarket. So I believed in that, but I don't know. I mean, in, in hindsight, there was a lot of things I should have done. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, on paper, that sounds great. 9% pref and a 50-50 split on the back end. Now, this was a few years ago, right? I mean, we're talking in late 2018. And the, what time frame did this happen? I think it was like, it's hard to, t I mean, it was probably maybe like 2013 to 2015, somewhere back then. Hmm. Okay. So if you were faced with this same situation a day, what would you do differently? Well, that's the hard part about these these passive deals. A lot of times it's like kicking the can down the road. Like how you and I were saying, there's a lot of deals where people are using kind of crazy assumptions where they're thinking the cap rates are going to go lower. And unfortunately, you don't see how much they uh, misled people until three, four, five years in the future. And that was kind of like, you know, what I was in this sense. In, in this sense, it was more the fact that the operator turned out to be kind of a scamster. So, I mean, when I look at deals these days, half of it is the numbers. 
which we were talking about. But the other half is the people. You know, are they do they act with integrity? Uh, what's their track record? Um, do I did I know them? You know, firsthand. You know, in this case, it was just a loose referral. But you know, today I don't invest with anybody I don't know, like or trust, and one degree of separation, and no other mm. people in their deal, other passive investors. That's why I tell a lot of people. Don't spend your time talking to syndicators. Spend your time talking to other limited partners because, and building good relationships with them because those are the people who you're going to you know, text on the phone. Hey, are you going to go to Robert's deal or John's deal or whatever? Interesting. How would you recommend getting in touch with those other limited partner investors? I mean, it's a big world. How do we find each other? Well, I mean, there's a lot of websites out there, but you know, the problem with those websites is it's filled with people who don't have any money and you know, people that don't have money aren't the ones investing in these private placements or syndications. Uh, so that's kind of a bad way of going about doing that. Um, it, it can it can get you into the web, and I guess that's better than nothing if you just can't leave your house. But ultimately, you got to leave your house. You gotta you've got to go out to a meetup or especially a conference, and and that's the second thing is like. The local RIA meetup, meetups. I mean, I don't know. I I've never found anybody there that was that was kind of doing this stuff on a national scale that really knew what they were doing. There's just a bunch of wholesalers and flippers. I don't know what your experiences are there, but that is exactly my experience. There's a, occasionally you'll run into somebody, but it's pretty rare. And I'm in a fairly small market too, and. Richmond, Virginia. If I drive up to DC and go there, then my odds increase a lot. And Michael Blanc is up that way, but he probably doesn't spend a lot of time at Ria's anyway. So, right, it's not 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 common. Right. I mean, a lot of us with with money, we live in primary markets, and that's not where the deals the deals are in the secondary and tertiary markets. And um, you know, if you go to the local Ria in a primary market, a lot of times you're meeting some folks that you know, may or may not know what they're doing. I mean, actually, that's what happened to my partner where he went into a deal, you know, well before 2008, I believe, into a shopping mall deal. And they turned out the guy was just, you know, some newbie in some, you know, shopping mall guru apartment or guru group. He didn't know what the heck he was doing. But it's hard as a partner because you don't know what you're doing. So how can... and, and, And it's like hard because these guys these days... Everybody can put a, a nice website together with the testimonials and then the, the all the little icons and like you know what their business plan is and put together a nice PDF. Um, everybody can kind of do that. So it's hard. <laughs> and it, and then again, that's what it comes down to: the people, the people in the actual deals, their previous deals is the important thing. So I'm, I mean, coming back to it, I think it's just a matter of going to conferences and you probably have to spend like 500 couple thousand dollars to attend these conferences i mean i've always said the more you spend on this these things the the bigger the filter is yeah absolutely i I think that's very true i mean you're located in hawaii right Right. so it's a little more difficult for you than the rest of us i mean i I did Um, a lot of this out of seattle and it was just you know it's the same thing like when where you're at right i mean sort of a primary market i mean there's no deals around you there in theory no operators around you so you gotta you know get off your butt and fly to these places and the cool thing is when you fly to these places a lot of other people have to fly there 
So you know what kind of a level of buy-in it is at that point. Yeah, I remember I went to this one like San Francisco um, conference and most of the people were from San Francisco and, and it wasn't a very good conference in my opinion. The, the buy-in of the people who were there wasn't very high. Hmm. Maybe that uh, that says something once you walk in and you start finding out that everybody's from the local market and you could have just run into each of these people at the grocery store or on the street, then it maybe wasn't as well marketed at a conference or it might be hard to get anything out of it uh, if you're somebody that wants to be in this type of a business. Right, right. I mean, it's just like how people say, like, you know, a $10,000, $20,000 mastermind. It, it, it goes, it's counterintuitive, but everybody says it's well worth it. If not for the price you pay, but the price that other people have to pay and their level of commitment. So can you give us an update as to what you've done since then investing in those limited partner deals. I mean, now you're on the GP side. Teach us a little bit about what that kind of transformation has looked like over the last Yeah, so years. I um, you know, I got up to 11 single family homes and, you know, I was making probably around $3,000 of cash flow a month with that stuff. And it it was great, um, but I realized it just wasn't scalable because at that many rentals, I was getting like an eviction or two a year and like maybe four big issues that arise. And, you know, if you just get double or triple amount of rentals, that, that number doubles and triples. And you can see how it sort of becomes a job and it's just not scalable. I mean, $3,000 of cash flow a month is great, but I mean, I'm, I need more like 10 and I don't need 20, but, I, you know, I need like more like 10. So that's what kind of pushed me mm -hmm. to, you know, look into apartments as more scalable assets. Um, to, and that's when I kind of joined an apartment mentoring group because I thought I wanted to be a lead investor. I wanted to be the guy. Then I did it for like 18 months and I analyzed like 200 deals and none of them made absolutely any sense. And I realized how um, scarce the deals were and how hard, hard work it was because I was living in Seattle at this time. And, you know, truthfully, you need to be taking these brokers out to lunch every other month. And that was just something I I wasn't able to do geographically, nor did I really want to do that. It was kind of a waste of my time. I'd rather just work at my engineering job at that point. And I had enough, like, liquidity where I could just invest as a limited partner. And I would be on the, the path to my financial goals. So that's what I kind of I, I kind of settled upon, that this was kind of my way of doing it. Interesting. That's a nice way to go about it because now a lot of what we hear is exactly what you said. You need to go be the lead guy. You need to be the head syndicator and be putting these deals together. But, you know, this is a show for busy professionals and you and I are busy professionals. So we don't really have that amount, the amount of time to fly to the Midwest or another market and meet with brokers all the time like uh, like some other guys do who are full-time in the business. So as you've kind of transformed and shifted your position in the business, can you tell us more about the things that you have done and the, you know, how'd you get up to that 1600 units? What's that comprised of and what's your role? Yeah. In so, I mean, I just kind of set my eyes on not being the deal hunter, you know, working with brokers and that, but being the deal hunter hunter. So these days I basically just look around for good operators with good track records you know, build a real relationship with them. And then, um, you know, they send me their deals. And if I want to invest, I sort of invest alongside of them. 
And then, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, sort of trust what I do for some strange reason. I don't know. <laughs> but they they just kind of want to like whale watch. So they copy what I do. So I let people know what I'm doing. And, you know, just people want to go in too. They just follow me. So, um, and, you know, part of it is like just, you know, you're investing for yourself first, right? You, you, you're not going to go into a deal if like they're assuming the rent increases are going to go up 4% or something crazy like that a year. Um, or if they're not using, you know, and not, they're, they're assuming that the occupancy is going to be like 95% or more. Or they're using this crazy cap rate conversion at the end. The numbers got to make sense. And then the people. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned you have folks that go in on deals with you or alongside you. What are, who, like, are those friends and family? Are those people that you meet by going to RIAs? I mean, I kind of doubt it, but, you know, how are you meeting these? Yeah, folks? I mean, initially, I, you know, I told my friends and family and they were like, well, this is really, you know, we trust you. This is, you know, this is really good. Um, if you're going to go into the deal, it must make sense. And that was kind of when I realized, like, you know, there's actually people that want to kind of follow me what I want to do. So then I realized that, you know, part of a partnership is, you know, who brings the capital to the table. And at, and the way it works in a lot of these deals is the capital raiser is sort of compensated for bringing in capital. But you need to be, you know, to follow SEC rules, you need to have a pre-existing relationship. And uh, you need to be in the general partnership as a partner contributing to that group. So initially, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know very much in terms of an operator. Yeah, I, yeah, I spent a couple years, paid 20, 30 grand to get training. But in terms of real world experience, I didn't really have very much. But, you know, we all use that analogy of the airplane and the cockpit where all the general partners sit. It, essentially, I was sitting in the jump seat of that cockpit, not really touching any buttons, but just sitting in and observing and kind of helping out where I could. But, you know, now I'm in probably about eight or nine deals. You know, there's apartments are pretty much cookie cutter in, you know, from a high level. And there's things that like happen in some deals that happen pretty consistently throughout a lot of deals. So there's, there's ways I can help out and, you know, advise, you know, give assistance in various ways, just helping out just with the admin things is how I help out these days. Nice. And you presumably, I would assume you see a good number of deals from a lot of operators. And we're talking in October of 2018. What do you see out in the market today? And what are some of your thoughts? I mean, everyone's saying that good deals are hard to come by. But if we go one step deeper from that, what are you kind of noticing as you talk with operators and look at their deals? Well, I don't know if it, the good deals are gone. Um, there's a lot more noise in terms of, I mean, everybody who did single family homes in say 2013 to 2015, they're kind of getting cocky at this point and jumping into, you know, the logical progression is apartments. So there's a lot more syndicated deals coming out. But if you know, if you have the data from the deals, such as the P&Ls and the rent rolls, and you have the ability to decode the data, i.e. put it into analyze or analyze it with the proper assumptions, you know, you know what the good deals are. But for the average layperson out there, you have no idea because it's all the same shiny PDF at the end of the day. Hmm. So the same, you know, there's good deals out there. You just have to figure out which ones they are. 
Um, but you know, in terms of trends, I'm seeing you know, Tech Dallas is kind of you know that's been the the best place from 2012 to 2016. I mean, rent increases were going up like five seven percent every year. Um, you could have actually done nothing to your property and increase the value just by market appreciation. Um, and I think a lot of operators, they've kind of moved on from Dallas unless you want to bang your head into the wall <laughs> there. Um, so, you know, looking into more places like Atlanta is a kind of a larger secondary market. But what I'm seeing, a lot of people are kind of going more into the tertiary markets. So like places in the South and the Gulf, um, a lot of, you know, like Huntsville is a place we picked up properties. Um, you know, a lot of those tertiary markets that, you know, you try and look for the old emerging market, right? Because those traditional markets like Dallas, um, Denver, or like Phoenix, for example, yeah, it's just no bueno these days. It's just not going to work there. Mm, absolutely. I think I saw Ken McElroy speak in early 2015 so and he was all at that point 2015 he was talking about them selling off all their properties in phoenix because the market had hit such a point that he just was deciding to sell because the market had appreciated so much and he just wanted to cash in and go somewhere else um and it's just interesting to me that that's continued to roll for three years i don't think phoenix has continued to appreciate but it hasn't fallen back, so maybe it's not the time to buy there. But if we do look in those smaller secondary tertiary markets, uh, there are still opportunities to buy. Right, right. I'm not I'm not too much of like a market driven kind of guy. I'm, I mean, Robert Kiyosaki says there's always like three sides to the coin. You know, the, the, the heads and tail side here is, you know, these are the good markets. These aren't the good markets. But I believe the edge of the coin, the third side, is it's the deal. Um, as long as the deal works, where you bought, you purchase a deal, whether it's off market or you know distressed seller, uh, with that has like the ability to bump the rents without doing anything, and then the ability to, to bump the rents with some forced appreciation, that's what's going to make or break the deal. I mean, of course, you don't want to buy it in like some horrible place. Like I don't, know, I don't want to beat up on Detroit even more <laughs> than it needs to be, but it, it, like a place like that. Um, with a declining population and not a good economy. But, you know, like, for example, um, I did a one in, like, Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, Des Moines, Iowa is not really going anyplace, but it's just one of those really consistent markets. But it was the deal that made it. Like, it was just undervalued in terms of the rents. I mean, you could have done nothing and bumped the rents 25, 50 bucks without doing anything per unit. Um, so I think... I would rather be looking for deals in other like fishing ponds where not everybody is fishing out of it, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. It really does. And I'd love to find a deal where you can just bump the rent 25% without making an appreciable change to the property. So, yeah. Oh, not, not 25%. I mean, yeah, those aren't around anymore. But like, you know, like $25, $50 on like $600 property. I mean, just that it's just under market a little bit and um you know the ability to force appreciate the other 25 to 50 dollars per okay. unit yeah that's reasonable then so we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor want daily interviews with real estate investors and none of the fluff go to bestevershow.com where joe fairless interviews daily real estate investors and entrepreneurs about their best advice ever go to bestevershow.com 
Lane, what is the best investment you ever made? Best investment was probably the first uh, real estate investment that I did out of state. Uh, two big things I got over was investing out of my uh, home location. I originally invested in Seattle because that's where I lived. But the first one was a turnkey property in Birmingham. And, um, you know, it worked. And that kind of gave me the confidence to do a 1031 exchange where I sold all two properties in Seattle and buy exchange for nine properties in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. So that really, that was a big step for me. That's a, that's a sweet exchange to make. How about what's the worst investment you ever made? And we might've touched on this one earlier. Yeah. I mean the, the limit partner deal definitely don't work with anybody don't know, like, or trust, but also say buying the other five to 11 single family homes. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think for high paid professionals, the single family homes just isn't very scalable. Um, doing, I, I think it's great to learn and to kind of like screw things up on a smaller scale and, and learn that way. But right now I'm in the process of selling off my all my single family homes, which I've been trying to do this whole year and I've only got about five more left I need to do. And it's just kind of a pain. Um, I wish I would have like bought a few properties I think everybody should own a couple of single family homes at the very, very least. But yeah, I shouldn't have bought, you know, gone bonkers and bought all those single family <laughs> homes. In That's interesting. And I, I want to, I don't want to derail too far, but owning a few single family homes, maybe probably turnkey properties, if I had to take a guess, do you feel that you can get enough pull with the property managers to take your property seriously if you invest with a turnkey, even though you might only have? say one or two properties in a particular market? Yeah. I mean, I've only bought turnkey the first couple times. After that, I just worked with a broker because I kind of got the hang of it. But I've always used third-party property manager. And I, that's what I suggest. Don't go with the property manager of the turnkey provider. That's just conflict of interest, if you ask me. Um, but to answer your question, I think when you get about three or more, that's about when you have decent pull with the property manager. But I don't know. I mean, property managers in the single family home realm are just, you know, they're, they're kind of a dime a dozen and their, their outfits are kind of all over the place anyway. I mean, even if you were one of their shining um, clients, I don't know if they could really help you out if things really got, got rough. I think they're just too busy just keeping their head above water. Mm. I don't know why anybody would want to be a property manager. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. I'd rather much rather be an investor and Glad I took that path. Right. What is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? This is my favorite question. I think a lot of people need a mentor. Um, and, you know, I paid for it once I got up to a certain level. I don't think you need to pay for it on the single family home front to get started. But, um, you know, I mean, just, I, I look back and I could have got up to this point like half the amount of time and with half the amount of like, you know, mistakes. Um, I think that's a big thing and try, but I think a lot of people go about it the wrong way, trying to find a mentor. They just ask a lot of questions and they don't really give back. Um, you know, just, I think there's sort of a quid pro quo thing, but there shouldn't be a quid pro quo thing. Um, helping out mentors. Cause why would a mentor help you? Right? Like they're just too busy just, just with another person who's supposedly kicking tires. Um, so building relationships and like feeding that relationship and, um, being open-minded to what other people who are a lot further along as 
on the path as you are. But, you know, not everybody you should listen to, right? I mean, if somebody is still at the local RIA meeting, you know, after they've been doing it 20 years, maybe you shouldn't be listening to them. <laughs> I know I'm not going to be at a local RIA meeting in 10 years. Mm, you're going to be on a beach. Well, you, you might already be on a beach living in Hawaii, but you'll be somewhere else. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I, I might just be lonely and want to hang out with people that think the same <laughs> way. But <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's fair. So, Lane, thank you for everything today. Where can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more? Yeah, they, they can go and check out my podcast, Lane uh, Simple Passive Cashflow is my email. Uh, Google Play, iTunes, that's Simple Passive Cashflow is the podcast and the blog and website, simplepassivecashflow.com. Available everywhere fine podcasts are sold. So to everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone that you know who could stand to increase their wealth but might not have the time to buy themselves a second job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, just thanking you for tuning in and supporting the podcast. And we'll catch you on the next one.